So today we're moving on, uh, actually take a little break from our discussion on the placebo, uh, to talk about Plato's arguments for the reality of values in this world. Uh, and whereas that time we're sort of introducing in some of the questions you have to talk about in the second part of your term exam, uh, today we're looking at um, uh, some of the arguments you need to discuss uh, on the third part of your term exam, the long essay. Uh, there are actually two different questions on the long essay. So that's what's on the screen now is uh, hopefully you've seen that already. Uh, it's the third question on the written exam, on the written exam, on the Let's see if there's two questions on the third uh, part of the exam. On the long essay, you can choose any one of them. One is uh, the first one. Uh, do any, I think the one we're going to talk about today. Do any of the things in this world have any real value to provide real happiness? Uh, and uh, the second one, question B, is uh, what we'll talk about next week. Uh, so you can choose any one of those. You can choose it now, and I'll say this is kind of uh, your answer to that to prepare in your head for the exam, which I have a question in advance. On the first part of this term, on the first two presentation topics, uh, you're not going to have a choice on that. I'm assigning you one of those, and you won't know which it is, so I'll take care of both of these. But on this one, you only have to prepare for one. Uh, and today we're going to look at uh, the argument that Plato gives. In fact, uh, and we're looking at them first because I think we've already introduced you to this. We'll recognize some of us in our discussion of um, the uh, two last two parts of our discussion of that. But we're also going to call these sort of psychological arguments because they don't assume. Uh, any metaphysical assumptions or metaphysical beliefs about the nature of reality. Lots of Plato's doctrines and views were based upon this view that there was another world and that this world is going to be a happy with images of that more real world. Uh, but the arguments we're going to look at today don't depend upon that. They don't start from those assumptions. We'll look at the arguments for that later next week. Uh, but these are some arguments that we're going to look at, just starting from our common ground of uh, psychological assumptions about what makes us happy. The first two uh, presentation topics were sort of artificially uh, simplified. They had one crucial issue, and there is just sort of one way of stating the crucial issue. Uh, you might find these ones a little bit more complex because there are going to be two different crucial issues, and that there are going to be two different ways of stating crucial issues. Uh, in real philosophical arguments, um, the hardest thing often is to figure out what exactly the crucial issue is, and oftentimes you'll find it stays in different ways. Um, so we're going to look at two different arguments, called the argument from objectivity or permanence, and then the argument that this is in hunger. But really, they're the same argument presented in two different forms. Uh, they're going to have the same uh, crucial issues and the same crucial assumptions. Uh, but the crucial issues and the crucial assumptions are going to be stated in two different ways. Uh, and the general form of both of those arguments is like this. Is, I mean, one, one crucial issue is, just like we said, you know, what's happiness and what's badness in verse two. Uh, one of the crucial issues is going to be how do you define what makes a value real? How do you define reality? What's the criteria for reality? Um, and then the other crucial uh, issue is going to be, does this world meet that criteria? So one crucial issue is about your definition of reality. The other crucial issue is about this world and whether it meets that criterion. Um, and Plato is going to play once you clear up the criterion, find this world is meeting in most cases. 
but it may look like the arguments are different, but you should see how point out to you as we're going through the arguments how uh, they're both just giving a criterion for reality and then talking about whether really this world meets that criterion. Uh, and these arguments are going to be pretty familiar to you. We've been discussing uh, them in the last week or so. Uh, the first one is called the argument from objectivity, or uh, we'll call it the argument from permanence. So there'll be another argument from objectivity with exactly this form um, for the existence of the form and the existence of the world that we talk about. Uh, but it's going to start out with the criterion for reality. So Plato's crucial assumption on the first crucial issue, uh, what makes something real, is that objectivity makes something real. Uh, that the more points of view something exists, the more likely it has to be real. Um, and in the case of values, uh, we saw already that objectivity sort of means permanence. Every time you look at something it still feels good, uh, that's another point of view from which that thing appears to be valuable. And if all of a sudden it seems like it was a really bad thing to do, like jumping out the window and you hit the ground on the way down, uh, then uh, from that, that's a point of view from which it no longer feels good. Uh, and Plato thinks that we all use permanence as a criteria. Uh, it seems real good at the moment to take off your clothes and put that lampshade on your head and party, but the next day it seems like a really dumb thing to do when the value goes away. Uh, we tend to conclude that that wasn't really a good thing to do. Um, if the shiny stove was hot, the uh, shiny hot stove was pretty and shiny and you want to reach out and touch it, and it feels good to think of doing that, but when you touch it and get burned, it no longer feels good. Who can want to do that? That's going to be what that And uh, we see already that Plato would say that none of the values in this world can meet that criterion. Uh, none of the values in this world are determined, either because we die and eventually they're taken away from us, or even if we don't die then uh, we look at some arguments that eventually even all the values and things in this world will eventually fade and get old and then give up our personal identity. If you want to write all these things down, you can get this PowerPoint on there. <laughs> <laughs> We said we looked at cases where jumping out the window when you see um, how painful it's going to be when something breaks up with you that you're no longer going to be in front of them or how you automatically detach yourself when you see the pain of loss that's going to occur um, when somebody dies. Um, so we, those would all be the, the common ground examples that they don't think that we would agree with. Uh, if you were going to disagree with them, you'd have to come up with an example, as we said, a case where somebody sees clearly that um, the person that they love is going to be taken away from them. It's clearly that like, some pain is going to result from the attachment of the commitment that they're making, and yet they still decide to attach themselves nonetheless. Um, and we kind of pointed out things that that's sometimes hard to do. If you come up with an example of somebody who falls in love with someone who's terminally ill, uh, Plato would just say, well, you know, they're really just in denial, and you have to convince them by trying to find an example where you're really sure that the person wasn't in denial, uh, but yet they still attach themselves to that value. Um, 
we'll see, that's one of the reasons there's going to be another version of this argument. If you debate in that one, so you get bogged down in the question of the environment. Do they really mean Do they really see it clearly? If they saw it really clearly, you know, would they still be able to attach themselves? Or would they not be on the subject of that idea? Uh, and we said, you know, the second one, the challenge was the crucial issue is you can't, none of the values in this world will be real, even if you were immortal. Eventually, you get bored with them and have to give up your identity. So, again, we pointed out before that if you could think of a solution to that problem, that you would have proven quite a wrong. Um, and we'll see that both of these are going to appear in the second argument, which is still more nebulous. Uh, so I won't belabor these ones in our debate when we have our third presentation time before we um, you know, we'll get a chance to debate this in class. But does anybody have questions about these ones? So you, know, you might want to start thinking of your examples. Um, again, you know, if you were going to try to think later on. Either you're going to agree with Plato, you're still going to have to consider examples against Plato and say how Plato would answer them. Uh, so it doesn't really matter if you decide you agree with you're still going to have to consider the arguments to the other side. But let's look at the, the second argument. We sort of introduced this last time, the dialectic from the Theta, that uh, everything in this world moves in that subject and pleasure is pain, and pleasure is pain, and you really want to listen to all these people in pleasure, uh, and then you pain to them, to be hungry and feeling, and you're having an itch and you're scratching, but what you really want is to get stay beyond pleasure and pain. Uh, that was kind of the last argument that we did. In this one, uh, it's really the same argument. It has the same crucial issues. It has a criterion of value uh, and talk about this world. It might be confusing that the order is reversed. The first premise or the first crucial assumption is going to be um, about the values of this world. And the criterion for reality isn't going to come until the second premise. So really, same argument in a different form, just the premises are reversed. And I suggest, um, on the advantage side of doing this question, you don't really have to talk about both arguments. I mean, you'd be better off to choose one of these arguments that makes the most sense of you can make the most progress on in your argument about it, or you can have the better examples for, and go into more detail on one argument than doing sort of a superficial treatment of two arguments. Uh, so this is the, the, the argument for riches and hunger. It starts with uh, talking about this world and saying in this world all of our values are like it is a monster. They're like the examples I brought up last time of starving yourself and eating or getting poisoned and even scratching yourself or hitting yourself over the baseball bat uh, and enjoying when you stop. That means they all arise from some kind of defect you need. Uh, and then uh, the second premise is the, uh, the criterion of the reality. Plato's going to assume, just as you know, that was the uh, argument, the preliminary argument for the last time, we all agree that those examples are not really a good way to be happy for some of these small men enjoying our styles and going to 49 years starving yourself. We feel good in all those cases, but better not to hit yourself in the first place. Better not to have 49, better not to be starving. Um, so those are, all, uh, our, those are all examples that seem to support that second crucial assumption that if a value or a pleasure only arises from pain, only arises from the defects, like Socrates feeling good when he took the chocolate off his feet, then it wasn't really a good value in the first place. So let's look at the arguments for the, the first premise. And we'll go here weak to the arguments for the second premise. Um, 
so again, the uh, first premise is all the values in this world arise from the defect. And the irony for it is really simple. Um, if you want something, then that means you don't have it. And um, if you have something, then you don't need to want it. And if you're if you're really stupid to have something in your hand and say, oh, I really, really, really want this. I really, really want a new iPhone or something. I really need to have it. They have it right there in their hand. Uh, and uh, so if you um, want something, that means that you don't have it. You're in some state of incompleteness and you feel lack of everything. Uh, and uh, if you have something already, then you don't need to feel desire or longing or need for that thing. Does that make sense? It seems almost obvious, doesn't it? But if it's obvious, then Plato thinks that that obvious fact shows that most of what you believe uh, about love uh, and about happiness is wrong. Uh, we'll talk about this more when we look at the passage from the symposium. Uh, you know, you may you know, watch uh, an old couple walking through the park, you know, so holding hands and kissing each other's cheek or something. Uh, and you may say to yourself, you know, I wish that I was, you know, after I've been married 25 years or so, I hope that I feel just as much uh, love, just as much passion, just as much need and longing for the person that I love as I do now. But that's the problem with my relationships. When you first meet someone, you feel all kinds of passion and longing and need, and as time goes by, it becomes less and less and less intense. And you wish that it would stay as intense and as passionate as it did when it started. But Plato would say, that's just stupid. Uh, why? Because what does it mean if you still feel as much passion and longing for someone after you've been with them for 20 years as you did when you first met them? Does that mean? Does it mean that you have to feel passion or longing or need for something? You don't have it, right? I mean, so if you still feel passion for someone after you've been with them for a year, what does that mean? They're not giving you what you want. They're giving you what you want. You wouldn't feel passion, you wouldn't feel longing, you wouldn't feel hunger and need. You would just feel quiet peace and satisfaction. And you wouldn't feel tormented by longing or passion or need. Um, so Plato thinks that most of us, uh, this is going to lead to the second type of argument, but um, he thinks that most of us have made a real, this would be mistaken who we were, we were slaves to our, our subject of self instead of serving our real object of self. He also thinks we made a radical mistake about what happiness is. Um, that we were, what we're really in love with is uh, sort of the feeling of intensity that comes from really wanting or needing something, the intensity of pain, really, uh, rather than uh, the state of satisfaction. So I remember when you first, like, your first crush on someone, who usually have your first crush on? Yeah, I think, you know, you're probably seeing agents in some of my daughters, you have a crush on them, so you're on a night. Or you have a, uh, you have a crush on a boy or a girl, and sometimes I class, you can tell them, you know, they don't have a crush on them. In most cases, you know, you don't know that. You don't know that. You don't know that. What you love is the state of being in love. You're in love with being in love. You're not in love with that person. What you love is the awful ache and the in your stomach and the longing that you know, in your sweaty palms and you can't think of anything else in the world but that. And you actually like that feeling of intensely being alive that comes from pain, which really is a type of pain or need or longing. Um, and again, um, 
you can tell that that's true because you know as soon as you oftentimes what happens is that you finally work up the courage to read that guy and go across the room and know what you have to do about them. You find mysteriously enough, all of a sudden, you know, once you start going out with them, all of a sudden the feeling isn't as intense anymore. You don't you're not so crazy about them. Uh, because you didn't really like them in the first place. What you liked was the intense feeling of anguish that comes from really, really wanting something, really, really needing something. So that's really, really, we've just given you a preview of the argument for the second premise, which says, it actually showed you that none of the values that you get in that way from defects are really real values. So what I think this is suggesting is that what you call pleasure, what you call the happiness of being in love, you can like that to be what it really nice to be in love. Um, really pain. What you're feeling is really anguish. You don't really and need love, which is a type of pain. Uh, just as we saw you know, when this food tastes the best, when you're hungry, so you feel the pain. So that you get fuller and fuller as the pain decreases. The pleasure decreases. And so if you're one of those hot dog eating contests, you have to show it a hundred thousand people, you know, and you're full and you're bored and you can't eat another bite, then it doesn't taste good at all. And then it tastes absolutely awful. Um, so Plato's going to claim that, you know, the common ground here is that if you were to look clearly at any of the things that you call pleasure, any of the things that you call fun, you only feel pleasure insofar as you still feel pain, so far as you haven't gotten what you want. You like that person, as long as you're just you far away, you can't get them. The more you know about them, the more you, know, the more you, you control them, the more you're going to stay with them when you're with them all the time, you know, the, the less pleasure you will get from them. Because the pleasure you got wasn't really enjoyment of them. The pleasure you got was a type of need or longing. So really, what you call pleasure is really kind of teasing an exacerbation of your longing. When you sort of exacerbate your reawakening, your pain, you're not really satisfied at all. Um, I'll, I'll, so this is, he makes up the common ground. He thinks no matter whether you agree with him or not on the rest of his uh, theories, that if you look honestly at your pleasures, uh, you'll discover uh, that you know, they're only pleasant uh, as long as you're not satisfied. The moment you're satisfied, you're no longer pleasant. Just as Freud came up with that theory about sexual pleasure, that it you know, feels good only until the moment of satisfaction, and at which point the pleasure ceases. Um, but it may help a little bit if we just sort of explain how Plato would, would uh, talk about that in terms of his theory of reality. Because just that, you know, if, if you, um, you know, say your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend lives in another state, you know, they're long distance romance. You have their picture on your night stand every night before you go to bed and look at their picture. You know, it would be pleasant to look at their picture. Uh, and when you look at their picture, it reminds you of the person that you want. Uh, and it sort of exacerbates your reawakening and brings to your mind again the need of the want. And you feel that pain of um, missing them come up again. Just like if you were walking in the desert, you were starving to death, and you came upon a whole issue of four-day magazines that's filled with all kinds of pictures and stuff you don't put in and ice cream and drinks and everything. <coughs> so you see that magazine with it all the time. You want to pull it out and look at it. Um, but um, you, know, you see that even though it, you like to have it and it exacerbated your longing and made you feel this intense need or hunger, it wouldn't satisfy that longing. And just the picture of the person on your hand, you can crumble the paper and try to eat it. But it's not going to give you what you want. 
That's because it's not what you want. You're being misled. I mean, the way things is like if you were watching TV and you think the person on TV is kind of really hot and you kind of fall in love with them. Uh, it's kind of silly when you think. Even though the, the, the TV is awakening your hunger, awakening your desire, the TV does not have what you need. You'd be stupid if you kissed the cat or agree to be open the middle of the teaching to try and get at that person inside of it. Because what you see on the TV is just an image of what you want. It awakens your longing, uh, and so you think that that's what you want, but it can't really satisfy your longing. So you can kiss the, 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 the screen as much as you like, you can eat as many of the pages of the magazine as you like, but every time you do so, the value will fade. Uh, so Plato thinks, well, this is an argument, this is just an explanation of his view. He hasn't convinced you that this world isn't real, that there's not a, it's just an image of a non-real world. But that's what he thinks is going on. The things in this world are not really what we want, they're just images or copies of what we want. Uh, and therefore, everything in this world just exacerbates our longing and makes us feel more desire and more need. Uh, that's really just a species of pain. Um, and this is a, a second argument. So this, this is two ways of arguing for that premise that of the crucial assumption that if something, if a, if a type of happiness or pleasure only arises from that you want to hunger, only arises from a defect, it's not real. And one way of seeing it is that uh, it's not really pleasure at all. It's just something that we know is bad. It's like pain. And pleasure disappears as soon as the pain disappears, as soon as we're satisfied. Um, the second one is to be familiar with it. It's a little boring case again. Uh, the nature of the hunger always recurs. Right? That's why I'm rather never to be hungry in the first place. I never have to have poison ivy. Um, I never have to um, uh, smack myself on the head with a baseball bat at all. Uh, because eventually you're always hungry again. No matter what you, uh, no matter what fun you try to get, uh, you say you like somebody for a while, all excited, and then they get boring, you have to find something new. You go out and do fun things, see this movie for a while, or play this game for a while, but after a while, it gets boring. And you have to, well, play those things, that's our strategy for the most part. Is that we all kind of realize that those are the things that we chase after immediately are valuable. So we always have to move really quickly from one thing to another thing before it gets boring, before it gets old, before the need of the hunger of the arises. We have to keep moving from one thing to another. That's sort of what we call it, a momentary fun, a momentary enjoyment. So Plato thinks if, uh, again, if you were to, if I have, yeah, so these are, the, what you'd have to do to disagree with Plato, the, the opposing assumptions would be uh, that there are some values that don't fade. You'd have to uh, think of some, just as we said, you could think of a case where you can put up with something without either being bored or giving up your personal identity to play with your own. Uh, so he thinks that you can't imagine anything that will pass in what we'll call an isolation room test. Um, imagine, so there's something that you like to do, no matter that we stuck you in a room with that thing. The person you love, the song you like most, your favorite car, your favorite, you know, happy stick, whatever it is that you really, really like. Um, and can, all you have to do is, for the rest of eternity, sit and enjoy that thing. Remember, just like our little book, that you can just sit there and go, ah, all of eternity is staring at. Uh, and Plato thinks that most of us, a lot of us, will say that, you know, really, you can't put up with your favorite person in the world, you know, for more than what do you do when you're with the favorite person in your world? You can't just sit there and stare at them and enjoy their pleasure. You have to play cards and see a movie. You have to do something to distract you from how boring they would be if you just gave them you know, your undivided attention. Um, so uh, the challenge is, again, if you could think of something that could pass the isolation room test, you'd be willing to sit there in the room and just enjoy 24-7 
for all eternity, then Plato would be wrong. Plato doesn't think that you can uh, think of anything that will pass that test. Uh, and as I mentioned before, you, know, you can also he also challenges you to think of some of your pleasures that don't disappear when the need of the longing is gone. Uh, is there anything that you enjoy when you're after you're full? Uh, is there anything you continue to feel pleasure with even after the need of the longing is satiated? Anything that there is solution with us? This is like one category that's ever changed. Like music is something that's ever changing. There's so many varieties, so many different types, but it's still one thing. Well, that's the point that's what Clayton said, is that you know, you, what you're doing is you're doing the strategy of jumping from one thing to another. You realize no song that you ever listen to, no song in this world that ever really sounds like it. So as soon as you can play a song for a little while, but what the song does again is be awakened in your some desire or longing. Then as you listen to it more and more, you realize it doesn't satisfy that. It starts to be it starts to be and you move on to another one. And that gets old, you move on to another one. So that's, well, you know, that's just really the admission of the fact that you realize that none of these songs is really giving you what you want. If it was, you'd be willing to settle with the law. Just there is a sense of opportunity. But if it's music as a whole and not just the individual songs, it's like, yeah, well, it's like, it's like recognizing that what you like is not the song you have in this picture of your boy, this picture of your boy, this picture of your boy, this picture of your boy. Look at this one for a while, they go, oh, this one's an old, this one's an old, this one's an old. But what you realize, what you're saying is that what you realize is I like my boyfriend, I don't like any of these particular pictures. So, what kind of agree is what you like is music, um, you don't like any particular song, but music does not exist in this world. All of it exists in this world are particular songs. And that's going to be one of the words. We'll get to this issue of directly when we start talking about love. Because we start talking about the time of love as opposed to physical love. So what you really want it is the part of the person that doesn't exist in this world. The part of the person that will survive after the death. Uh, I think we kind of draw a lot like an animal. I mean, you get like an animal. You know, <laughs> well, you have to consider, you have to consider honestly whether you actually believe that that's true. Well, I, if you put me and my brother in our you know, back seat on a 500 mile trip to either Oklahoma or something, yeah. and boy, we would be sick in You have your time. Yeah, well, so, so Christianity disagrees with this. And there's something in the idea, even if you get sick of your brother, even if somebody is really disgusting, you feel boring, or you're so full of love in any way. But that's a certain question. Can you do that? And so later in the course, we'll bring that up more explicitly and ask, so how do they say it's supposed to happen? Now we're just going to ask you, that ever happened to you? Were you ever able to do that? Were you ever able to wrestle them so much that you were willing to do that? Were you ever able to get an old and them and finding a really good moment at the time? So that's the right thing to think of. And then you've got to convince Plato that really is. Yeah, Plato. Plato, we find it hard to believe that any human being is ever really going to be able to put up with their family members who know that this is the moment. So they get away from them. And then after you get away from them, well, it feels nice to be back home. So it's wonderful to go back home for 10 years now. You can see in two weeks, but if you're stuck with them all summer, well, by the end of summer, you're fine to get away from them. 
And in fact, you know, that's the whole reason why we're looking at the symposium, uh, which was Plato's dialogue on, on love. Because you might think that, well, maybe, you know, itches and food and things like that are obviously materials, but maybe there could be love is the type of value we're capable of having in this world um, that does have real value. Um, and that's why uh, Plato's discussion of the symposium is so important. Uh, and the symposium sort of proceeds dialectically just like the theater. All of Plato's dialogue will start out with one definition or one view, and then they race for the students to it, and then they synthesize those together to get a slightly better view. Um, we haven't got too far in our dialectic and the theater yet. We started with one argument, but then we go on to the third argument as well. Uh, in symposium, do you know what the symposium is? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, nowadays, if you say, I'm going to a symposium, you can look at the place where people talk and debate. So, literally, uh, a symposium was a drinking party. Agathon had just won the prize for um, drama. Um, and they had to make a, uh, they played a whole drinking game where everybody passed around this giant pack and their wine and this like a wine pool. It was a little bit too much water to one part wine. Um, and um, everybody would have to take a big draw, like a big chuckle of it. Um, and then after they had taken their big broad walk, everyone was required to give a speech. Uh, and they were different topics. And, and this particular speech was supposed to be everybody after they did their speech was supposed to give a speech on law. Um, and I exerted out for you not to ask speech, but since Socrates was going to come in and he was going to give his speech on law as well. Uh, Socrates is in that party yet. Uh, the speech that I exerted from you is uh, Aristophanes' speech. Can you know who Aristophanes is? The real visitor the person. In the apology, Aristophanes is sort of alluded to as one of the former accusers who were doing Socrates' reputation. He wrote a play called The Clouds, in which Socrates portrays a buffoon who was around for big things and looking at the sky and crying under the roads and things like that. So Aristophanes would have been like the first sitcom writer. Uh, some of you may have heard of the Light of the Smada, this famous play where the women of Athens decide to stop the war by withholding their sexual favors from them. Um, um, you know, there's people in the United States and some other countries who do that. Uh, based on why this starts. Um, so, uh, Aristophanes is kind of this common. Well, we're going back to you know, the as the thing's going around, it becomes Aristophanes is trying to speak, he's talking at the hiccups, and he has to pass him by. And this is how you get back to So, this is a little, little story of how love arose. The fifth guy is the argument from opposites, which is kind of a dumb argument, but it symbolizes the basic structure of Plato's theory of reality. So, uh, Aristophanes' silly little story of where uh, love came from is going to symbolize everything that Socrates will say later in the dialogue. So, do you remember how uh, love arose according to Aristophanes? Tells this silly little story, kind of a myth. He doesn't, so he doesn't really believe that it's true, but he thinks that, you know, just like a fable of the the wine in the mouth or something, you know, teaching you something. But he says that he's, he, this is the source of the idea of the soulmate. So when Jerry Maguire says, you know, you complete me, you know, he was quoting Plato from this particular passage. So Aristophanes says that one time you would be, we sort of double what we are now. We must have two heads and four legs and four arms. Uh, and we were sort of um, 
that's why you know, the reproduction was an attempt to provide a substitute for the wholeness that we once had, hoping to recognize you know, man, woman come together in sexual union, produce a synthesis, which is the child, which contains an image of each of those. Uh, but I don't think again, that's only a, 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 a mere substitute for the type of wholeness that we really want. You've heard of the time well, was it you somebody says I will be the time and I don't want to be the time and then I don't want to be friends. So the time is love that's based on not on any physical attraction or sexual interest. It's based only on the love of the person's mind or their soul or their, or their qualities. Um, so Plato thought that what you really want from someone, if you were to answer, if you try to figure out you know, why is it that somebody that you like likes you, um, Plato thinks that what you want is, you know, even that's called intimacy. You know, why is it that you want to share your life with someone and tell them what you did when you home from work and you share your sorrows and your pains and your joys that you see them every morning when you wake up and when you go to sleep? Um, Plato said what you're yearning for is um, for your experience to um, be united with theirs. He thinks that if you could, you would merge yourself to that person so completely that you didn't even have two minds anymore. You had this one set of experiences. You could feel everything you need to feel. So is that true? Is that what you want from someone to follow up? <coughs> So you see how Plato was saying, why do we do the things we do with somebody, or why is, is, uh, 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 is sexual relationships involved in love? Because those are all just substitutes. You know, there are ways when you, when you just like when you watch a movie with someone, or you read a book with someone, or you, uh, you kiss them, uh, or you touch them. Those are ways in which it becomes as close as possible to, it's like you're almost having the same experience. You both get into the movie, you both are feeling just some intense experience, have intense pleasure at exactly the same time. Uh, it's almost as if you are breaking down the barriers between the two of you and you're feeling like the, the same thing. So, if we ask them, what's the defect that um, we're trying to fill when we're in love. Uh, what is it? Plato um, thinks it's a type of aloneness. So when you, uh, when you come into this world, you'll be alone in your own mind, in your own experiences. Uh, and when you die, you'll be alone in your mind, in your own experiences. Uh, and you'll be able to live with someone you know, your entire life. And yet, you know, when you see that person that you live with your entire life, if you reach out and touch their, their cheek, the sensation on your cheek will still be in their mind, and the sensation in your fingers will still be in their mind. Uh, and you won't be able to feel what's in that person's mind, and they won't be able to feel what's in yours. So Plato thinks we feel our aloneness, our solitude, as a type of defect. We see something outside of us, uh, and it reminds us of the state of homeless that we once had, and we desire to get that beautiful thing outside of us, inside of us. But what's Plato say about like twins? 
Well, that's what we want. If that were possible, Plato would say the close twins, just like a soulmate. They wouldn't need to speak anyone else? Well, that's the, that's, that's the tricky part. There's, there's a sort of a ladder of love that Plato will describe later when Socrates gives his speech. So at first, you desire, first he says you desire a, you know, a beautiful body uh, in someone, you're attracted to them physically. Then you realize that, that you know, no matter how much you, you rub your body against someone, you fresh your body to them, just like the two people in the story. You can't really get to take the beauty that you want. Uh, then you begin to love their qualities. Uh, and then you say the best thing to go for in this life is to uh, work together with someone, <coughs> some common project to build
uh, and that really so love is practicing killing that particular identity and giving yourself over to the bigger life and bigger project. But ultimately, in this life, he thinks that it's all kind of really sad, just like uh, the two people putting their bodies together, trying to reunite. They're just going about it all the wrong way. You're not going to find intimacy that you really want, intimacy, intimacy reunion in that way, by pressing your lips to another person's lips, holding your body against the person. Um, ultimately, what you want is something that you can't get to while trapped in your body. You can only get little glimpses of that clean What you really want is the union and the outside of this world. So is, you know, is that true? Is that what you want when you fall in love to give up your individuality? This one, you know, if you're going to disagree with Plato here, yeah, slide for that. if you were going to disagree with Plato here, you have to, the assumption is that, again, all uh, desires in this world arise from the detail. Thank you. 